So we are looking at the idea of Jesus' superior priesthood. And to prove Jesus' priesthood is superior, we compare his priesthood with whose? Melchizedek's. And we show that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. We showed that in 1 through 10, and now we're looking at some specific areas in which Jesus' priesthood was greater. In 15 to 17, most recently, it's that the nature of the priesthood was better. The Levitical priests were priests because of their ancestry only, a physical requirement, but Jesus, because of his inherent nature, his indestructible life, and he cites again those words of Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He has a perpetual priesthood because he lives forever. And so his priesthood is of a different order. Then, I think we read this, but we had not talked about it. In 18 and 19, he says, for on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, what he does, and he did this also in 11 to 14, is that he connects the change of priesthood with what? The change of law? Exactly. Because the law and the priesthood are inseparably connected. When the priesthood was changed, the law was changed also And because the new law is based on the superior priesthood of Jesus, then what does that enable us to do? Yeah, draw near. What does the priesthood of Jesus do that enables us to draw near? Yes. But when we say take away the veil, the point is not that physically that veil was taken away, because the veil really symbolizes what? Sin. Sin. So Jesus' priesthood took away sin, thus taking away that symbol of the veil and giving us access to the presence of God. It brings us near to God. That's a much greater thing than the law was able to do. The law could not do that because the Levitical priests could not ultimately and fully take away sin. That was only through Jesus that that was accomplished. So we see how much greater this new law based upon the new priesthood is. I think he's making a very powerful case for not going back to Judaism. I mean, when you start thinking and accumulating these things, why in the world would you go back? And it would be the same thing for us who might want to go back into whatever. Go back into the world or something else. Look at what what the Lord has done for us. When you stop and really look at the blessings of being near to God, why would you want to go to anything else? There's nothing that can do that for you. All right, comments and questions through 19. Why did he say that the law was useless? Well, it didn't do the job of taking away the barrier and bringing us near to God. It's not that it's useless in every respect, but it's useless in the sense that it could not do that. It didn't didn't have that use. There are some things that it did, we see that in various passages, but in terms of taking away the barrier of sin and bringing us to this kind of access with God, the law simply couldn't do that. It was useless in that. How often do you hear people make a statement like, well, but under the old law, people weren't forgiven of their sins. And how do you how do you try to deal with that in some somewhat of maybe a succinct way? And do you find yourself successful in dealing with that? I don't know how successful I am, only those who hear me would know, but, but uh, I mean, I deal with it. I mean, what I would say is that it is certainly true that the law and the Levitical priesthood did not and cannot take away sin. Sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. There are many passages that teach that, Psalm 51, for example. 
but they were forgiven on the basis of God knowing Jesus would be sacrificed. So their sins were forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, by his priesthood, just as ours are. Um, and I mean, Romans 3 is a good passage for that, 25 and 26. Um, and, and really, it uh, my analogy is that God wrote checks of forgiveness before the funds were in the bank for them to clear, because God infallibly knew that the blood of Christ would be there to pay the debt when the time to pay the debt came. We can't do that because we don't have infallible foreknowledge. But that's essentially what God did. So forgiveness was given, but only based upon the sacrifice of Christ to the king. Any thoughts about that? Other things you want to say to verse 19? It seems that, that God, um, when they gave sacrifices, that God forgave them based on the sacrifices, although not because of the blood that was shed in them, because they, they did the act. Kind of like how when we're baptized, you know, it's not going underwater that saves us, but the act of doing it that saves us. I think we need to distinguish, distinguish between conditions and means, is what you're saying. And yes, offering sacrifices was a condition to receive the forgiveness. But the means of the forgiveness was the blood of Christ. Uh, they didn't see that so clearly. In fact, you see sometimes where you don't really know why the sins are forgiven. I make the point when I'm going through Isaiah, there's several times when you see the wrath taken away. And you don't know why until you come to Isaiah 53. And you realize the wrath was, you know, executed uh, on Jesus. So, um, really, there is not a huge amount of difference between the whole salvation process and the Old Testament and the New Testament. You think about, like, when Romans makes the case for New Covenant salvation based on faith. What do they go back to? Abraham and even David in Romans 4 from Psalm 32. <laughs> That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That, that in many ways the principles of God saving by grace through faith were the same. Obviously we have much more light shed on that in the New Covenant than we did in the Old. But really, everybody who's ever been saved has been saved by the blood of Christ, has been saved on the condition of faith. Now, exactly how that faith should be expressed is different. But the basic principles of salvation really have not changed. We just see it so much more clearly now. Other thoughts? Twenty to twenty-two. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is another point of superiority in Jesus' priesthood, and what's the point? Yes, exactly. There was not an oath involved in God making the Levitical priests priests. But there was in Jesus' priesthood, and he goes back to what passage again? Psalm 110. That the Lord had sworn and would not change his mind, you're a priest forever, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, that swearing that he'd be a priest, you would do that for something that is greater. You know, good people don't just inter put an oath in to confirm some triviality. You know, you would only use an oath for something more solemn and serious and consequential. Certainly God 
does not just go around taking oaths all the time. You know, when he takes an oath like that, it's because it's a very solemn, serious matter that he wants to give abundant confirmation to, to give more assurance uh, about. And so the fact that he would take an oath in connection with Jesus' priesthood is just another mark that God considered Jesus' priesthood superior to the Levite priesthood. Comments and questions? What does it mean when it says they became priests without an oath? I guess, I'm trying to think of, so it's basically God didn't say when he appointed Levi, Aaron, etc., a priest, he didn't say, oh look, you're a priest, I swear you are, really. Yes, so he didn't promise with an oath that he they would be a priest or whatever. He appointed the priests. They were priests by God's direction, but not with, with an oath. I, I had a note. I, you know, you talked about Jesus being a high priest forever in contrast with the many high priests under the Levitical uh, system that from Aaron to the high priest in 70 AD which is maybe in the neighborhood of 1600 years that there were about 83 different high priests. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I have no idea where that fact <laughs> came from so I don't know of its validity but if that's true there were somewhere around 83 high priests compared to one. Yeah. Uh, it would be interesting to know. I don't know if there's a way to know that or not. There seems to me like there is somewhere, somewhat a listing of some succession of priests. Uh, I don't know if there's. I don't remember where. Why right, anything else than 22? 23 to 25. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save the uttermost those who can't come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy. Um, um, yeah. right. So you've got, from 23 to 25, this keeps going off. Um, <laughs> you never know when I when I don't answer the phone when I'm just chopping you off. Uh, 20, 23 to 25 shows the difference. In what sense? What's what's the contrast between the Levites and Jesus priesthood in 23 to 25? They die. Yeah, the point that we've been making. They die. Jesus. Yeah. It's a permanent priesthood. <laughs> Jesus never passes the priesthood on to anybody else. He just continues in office. So he, he just continues to hold that as an absolute priesthood. That That's obviously a much superior thing uh, than one that just has this succession going on. And Jesus as priest continues to save those who draw near to God through him. You know, this is something where his the effect of his being priest and his sacrifice continues to be the way we are able to draw near to God. It continues to be the uh, intermediary between us and God. So we continue to benefit from Jesus' priesthood. There's no, there's no need for anybody else to succeed him in that role. Uh, clearly, that's a much superior thing, to be a permanent priest as opposed to the succession of priests. Comments? Or? It changes the emphasis a little bit on verse 25 when you think of that. Um, you know, just reading over it, 
you might think, you know, he always lives to make intercession. Intercession being the, the emphasis, but the, I think the emphasis there is he always lives. Yeah, he is doing the other, but it's permanent and it's forever. Just hadn't, just kind of struck me as you're making those points. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, <laughs> the others couldn't do that because of their death. Well, and I would assume there would be some possibly small gap of time between the previous high priest. One dies unexpectedly and you're not, you know, okay, now we got to purify and so we have to take seven days to do this and, you know, whatever. So for that period of time, there's no one who could make intercession. And here we have, he always lives. He's always able to do it. 24-7-365, you know. And I guess you could think that uh, every few years you've got a priest who's new on the job, and, you know, have high priest having to, you know, assume those roles for the first time. I mean, there's got to be a, you know, every time you get a new one, there's the first time he goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, you know, when he hasn't ever done that before and so forth. You would, you know, you trust somebody who's got more experience to do a better job. He has a in-training badge on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many years of service, you know? Without an accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Those accidents may usually have been fatal. So. <laughs> what, what about that idea of, uh, uh, like Sarah said, of, of going through the high priest of the Levitical covenant uh, Levitical priesthood as an intermediary, but weren't weren't people able to pray to God without you know? So so in what sense was the Levitical high priest an intercessor beyond the offering of sacrifices? Well, I think the offering of sacrifices was probably the primary thing they also talked about. Yes. Yes. So, in some senses, they were an intermediary from God to the people. Mm -hmm. I think in those ways. Okay. Yeah, I, I, certainly. I mean, David prayed to God and others. I mean, I don't think that, yeah. that you know, if, I, <coughs> we, we probably, I don't know. I think we, and I don't have this worked out in my mind completely, but I think we tend to have this idea of the intercessory or mediator role of Jesus as mostly changing prayer. I don't think it really does that so much. It enables us to draw close to God without the barrier of sin. Um, I mean, just more, it's more of a concept of being in the presence of God, perhaps. But as far as praying, I don't know that praying is a whole lot different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I don't know. I, 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 I've always heard that too. But I don't really see that. And I don't think Jesus Jesus' mediator role at least in 1 Timothy 2 is connected with his being a ransom for us. He's a mediator in the sense that he's given his life to reconcile us to God not in the sense that he's toting our prayers to the Father or something like that. What do you think that means, though, at the end of 25, that he always lives to make intercession for them? There may be a sense in which he appeals to God for us, um, or maybe it's just that his he continues to um, represent his sacrifice on our behalf to atone for our sins. I certainly don't see Jesus' intercession as being us praying through Jesus to get to God. I don't think that's a biblical concept. But our ability to talk to God is based upon the relationship that we have with him because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes, I think that's a fair statement. And more than that, our ability to draw near to God and have that close relationship with God with no barrier I don't mean just in prayer but I'm saying just in every way is based on that um, we may have looked at this somewhere along the line but in John 16 
the passage that I think has helped me solidify my thinking, at least as far as it is at the moment about this, is John 16, 26, where Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from the Father. Now, we make, we ask in Jesus' name, that is, on the basis of what he's done. But he says, it's not going to be necessary for me to have to ask the Father for you. He loves you himself. You can ask him directly. So, if I'm praying to God and I, I verbalize that my prayer is in Jesus' name, I would say I am recognizing that my relationship with God is based upon what Jesus has done for me. Exactly. I think that's exactly what that should be. And what, again, what you're saying is not the picture or the model that that there's a there's a a, a conduit through which prayers go through Jesus and then to God, but just like in the Old Testament. People talk to God. And the way that we're able to do that today, and perhaps to some extent, maybe as we've talked about before, the way they were able to do that before in faith was because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes, I think exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Their relationship with God, although they might have, may not have known it, and certainly ours, is based upon what Jesus has done. There's no way we could have fellowship with God. <coughs> if it weren't for Jesus' sacrifice, and he was taking away our sins, he was taking away the barrier, reconciling us to God, it's appropriate for us to acknowledge that. That's definitely the way we have that relationship. But it's not that we pass our prayers through Jesus' office for him to carry them on to the Father. I don't think that's a biblical concept. And I really think, I suspect both Old and New Testament, that when people pray to God, that it's not so much making a distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are times when that distinction is made. I think it's appropriately made, but I think there's many times when the prayer would be to God without distinguishing between the persons. And sometimes the New Testament, where you have even statements that reflect praying directly to Jesus. I think, I think that's, that's fine. I think that's appropriate. And, and that we do have a direct relationship with God based upon what Jesus has done. So when we say in Jesus' name, what that ought to mean is it's based upon his sacrifice that we can talk to God. And certainly, no more than anything else that we do, which is to be done in Jesus' name, does it have to be explicitly stated that's in Jesus' name. We don't have to say those words for the prayer to be valid. It's, it's, you know, it's fine to, to just end. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that there would be a biblical requirement that we say amen. And I suspect many times when we pray to God, we don't, if we're praying by ourselves. There, there may be some, some value in, in saying that just so people know the prayer is over. I don't know that that's a bad custom, but it's not what makes, makes the prayer valid. Yet you have a number of New Testament examples where those talking to God chose to verbalize that. Yes. Yes, more the amen perhaps than the in Jesus' name. But yes, that's exactly right. Um, and probably verbalized it more for just the emphasis of what the amen means. You know, yes, this is, this is, this is right. It sort of adds a, a, you know, strong affirmation to that. But, but still, I think there's probably some value to us in a practical sense, having some sign that the prayer is over. But, uh, but it, it's not what makes the prayer right. I mean, you know, if we're praying and we don't say in Jesus' name or we don't say amen, it doesn't suddenly mean that the prayer wasn't heard by God or something like that. But I do think sometimes people get that concept. So if you're teaching and training, do you teach and train in that regard? You usually don't need to because people do it by what they've heard. 
I think it's okay to teach what these things mean and their optionality. I haven't usually had too many people question the amen one way or the other. We usually do do that. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of people who don't always say in Jesus' name when they pray. I think that's perfectly okay. I don't always do that, even when I'm praying publicly. Um, it's certainly not bad to give recognition to the fact that we pray on the basis of what Jesus has done. But if we, if it becomes just a formula, it may be better if we don't say it all the time. I mean... You know, I've sometimes not said in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when I baptize people. Not because there's anything wrong with recognizing that I'm baptizing them into a relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but I'm not sure I really want people to think that there's some sort of a magic, magic formula that made the baptism okay. It's sometimes hard to know practically where to go with that. I mean, you're not trying to draw attention to the uniqueness of something. But on the other hand, when we do something with exactly the same phrasing all the time, it may perpetuate something that we don't want perpetuated. There have been times when I've baptized people and said nothing. You know, it's not what we say that makes the baptism valid. you want to say about all this or through Hebrews 7.25. <laughs> it's, good to, it's good to think about some of these things. It's good to talk about them. And I think helpful for us to... Uh, you know, I think a lot of times young Christians don't have security. You know, they may feel like, yeah, I don't think you have to do this or I think you can do that. But I can remember times when it was awkward for me to do things I thought were right because I sort of felt like, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't. I mean, it was... As a, as a teenager, even though I did this some, it felt very awkward for me to praise God directly in prayer because I never heard it. And I tried to do it some because I thought it was right, but it almost felt wrong. That's really, that's bizarre that that would be the case. And, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody ever looked down on me for doing that. I mean, it's just, it's hard to do something you don't hear very much when you're younger. You know, as you get older... I think it's easier to have more confidence. You study the Bible more and you feel more secure that, yeah, this certainly praising God in prayer is right. And I've heard that plenty since then, but, but I didn't really hear that growing up. We listened to uh, a lesson on prayer by Peter Wilson Those just last night, and he, he painted this picture, which I think fits well with what we've talked about, and that is when, when I'm approaching God in prayer, it's it's not as if I'm one of, of a great throng standing in the back um, trying to make my way forward to get an, an audience with God. It's as if Jesus comes and takes me by the hand and leads me up to the Father and says, Father, here is my friend, John, and uh, I'd like to introduce you to him and he has some things he'd like to say to you. And I thought that was really... Oh, because again, I think that points out it's not as if I'm saying some things in Jesus' ear and then he repeats them to God, but yet it is as if Jesus enables my entrance into the presence of God and a personal relationship and the ability really to stand before God and, and, and ask and talk and praise Him. He vouches for you. Yeah, I agree with all that. And yet, even at that, I think something that ought to be added to that is, who appointed Jesus to do that? God is the one that put Jesus in that role. So it's not like Jesus does that to a reluctant father, even at that. It's so interesting that we're the ones that, um, you know, hurt the relationship, and God's the one that took the initiative to reconcile. That's so amazing. We don't do that very well in personal relationships if, you know, so-and-so offended me, you know, then so-and-so needs to come to me and work it out. You know, it's not, I mean, you know, they're the ones that cause the problem. We'll be fairly, you know, indignant about that sort of thing. And God does just the opposite of that. It was all us that created the barrier, and he takes the initiative in the reconciliation, in the Second Corinthians five, and and sends Jesus to reconcile us because he wanted Jesus to bring us up to him, 
restored so that he could have that closeness with us. That's an amazing thing. You know, there's so many different angles on that. But it is amazing that, that the Father wants this relationship restored and he made all the sacrifice to do it. Good thoughts? Before we go back to Hebrews, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, like, obviously there are examples of people praying specifically to Jesus. Is there anything... Um, where a person prays to the Spirit? I don't know of anything okay. other than probably as I, my concept would be that prayers to God are prayers to God as a whole, oftentimes. But as far as the specific <coughs> statement to the Spirit, I don't know of one. We just, I still think there is more that's not as clearly revealed about the nature of the Spirit. I have more doubts about exactly all of that. I don't have a particular problem with the traditional view, but I do think we just don't have as much specific revelation about some details regarding even the kind of being the Spirit is. I do think do think the evidence we've got leads to the typical Trinity view, but I don't think it's nearly as strong when it comes to the Spirit as it is to Jesus. Other comments and questions? Well, Hebrews 7 then, um, 26 to 28. sacrifice, how is it different? <clears throat> he doesn't have to offer one for himself yeah. first. Yeah, it's almost like the um, I don't know, effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice is not dissipated by the need to atone for his own sins. <laughs> the full value of his sacrifice is applied to ours, because he has no sins to atone for. Uh, he you know, that, that's, the, the, there's no Levitical priest who could do that. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sins so that he could then stand before God on behalf of the people. <clears throat> Jesus had no need for that. What a contrast. That's such a powerful thing. We have such a high priest. Wow. You know, we, the idea of going back to the Levitical priesthood makes no sense the more you read this. And in 2028, 20, I think he more or less summarizes the case. You've got three basic contrasts in 28. The law versus the word of the oath. Men versus son. And weak versus made perfect forever. And that's a good, in a concise, succinct way, you get the essence of the superiority of Jesus. Well, it's just what's there. It's the law versus the word of the oath. It's men versus son. And it's weak versus perfect.
what does it mean when it says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest? Is there, I mean, it sounds like there was something about us that made it right and okay and appropriate for us to have that high priest. And then you look at, you know, what we are and you go, no, we don't deserve that kind of a high priest. It's not really fitting, it's necessary. Uh, that's what I would assume he's saying. I mean, it was considering the goal of reconciling us back to God, this is the kind of high priest we had to have. Not that it fits our character, certainly, but that it fits our need. In the way God made us in his image and you know, the Psalm 8, you know, well, what is man? And, well, God, God put us where he put us. And because he wanted that relationship with us. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Other comments? describing that scene of Jesus leading us up into God's presence. Um, I almost kind of had a picture of God saying, okay, fine, I'll listen to you, but only because Jesus says that He's that you're with him. But God wants to, and um, that's hard to fathom. It's amazing. When I consider the amazement we have about the way God loves us, I think about Hannah and Sarah talking to each other and saying, can you believe mom and dad love us? Why would they love us? <laughs> but it's natural. And I don't know that we even look at God's love as natural that way. I mean, yeah, we're undeserving. Sometimes they're undeserving. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about this? I mean, yeah, there, man, I mean, certainly that's the way God feels about that. I mean, God wants to love us. It's, it's, it's not a, there's nothing reluctant, there's nothing, you know, God doesn't have to hold his nose to love us. Though, he adopts us. I think that might be a helpful thing to think about. Because can you imagine being a, a, a worthless child feeling that, seeing that, a nobody, and somebody really important and loving adopts you. I think in that situation you feel the unnaturalness of that more. And because certainly God didn't have to. You know, God wants to. I don't know. I mean, how are we with that? You know, do we find it natural to love unlovable people who do bad things that hurt us? Would we adopt a child who has spit in our face over and over again and beat us up and hurt us and done all that? So would we want to adopt them? Would we go? Would we make a personal sacrifice to try to help them be transformed to where we can adopt them? I don't know. But definitely, the Lord wants to love us. It is, it, the Lord eagerly seeks the relationship. However we want to look at the, how we ought to react to that, it's definitely true that everything we see about the Lord is, I mean, this is what He wants. That's very comforting. It's very reassuring. I think we need to see that to be able to be close to him. You know, it, can you imagine being adopted by really um, high position people who let you know every time they, you turn around that it was a great act of condescension on their part <laughs> that they adopted you. <laughs> you, know, you. You might, I mean, you might end up, you know, thanking them, but you wouldn't feel close to them.
Other comments? Well, that's a powerful chapter, chapter 7. Um, just, wow, there's a lot in that whole priesthood comparison I think was helpful to study. Um, we kind of move on, kind of add to that in chapter 8. So would somebody read 1 to 6? Now the main point, what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens, a ministry in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Well, you know, he's been talking about the priest, and one of the key features of a priest is he has to have a place to serve his priest. And where does Jesus serve? In the true tabernacle. Yes. What's that? It's the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about a tabernacle as being a place where God dwells, then a true tabernacle is a place where God actually is. You know, we'd say his throne room in heaven. And that's where Jesus serves as priest. I mean, this would be sort of, uh, you know, getting promoted to, uh, you know, from, from maybe, you know, I don't know, serving as a page for some, you know, uh, local government sort of a thing to actually being the president's personal assistant or something. You know, it's like, wow, this is, this is the place to, to serve. It's the very tabernacle the Lord pitched and not man. Uh, the earthly tabernacle is just a shadow of the real place where God lives, where Jesus serves as priest. And uh, actually it was necessary for Jesus to serve as priest there. Because if he was on the earth, how would it be? Why not? These are the descendants of Judah and not Levi. Yeah, he wouldn't even be qualified by the earthly priesthood standards as a person from Judah to serve in the earthly tabernacle. That's not where he's priest. He's priest in the very place that Moses copied. That, that, that the earthly tabernacle is the shadow of. Now, he keeps emphasizing that idea. And, and there's a good analogy here, I think. If you think about the, the tabernacles being the shadow, the model, so to speak, uh, of the reality in heaven. Do you know any, uh, you know, teenage boy who would continue to, to really focus primarily on and play with model cars when he gets to drive a real one? You know, I mean, wow, the reality of that, you know how a little kid, a little boy especially, you know, he'll go vroom, vroom, and you know, he'll run this little model car all around, and you know, he's pretending, he's doing the best he can with that model to act like he's in the 500 mile race or whatever, but once he actually gets his hands on a real car, you know, the, there's a little bit of the luster of that model car that's not there anymore. You know, he's not going to go room room with it all, all that much anymore. And, and it's the same way. I mean, we've got the real thing, the real priest serving in the real sanctuary, and you guys are wanting to go back to the Levitical system? You know, that's really strange. I like that analogy. So comments and thoughts on one to five. So the emphasis of the end of verse five about making things according to the pattern is just that again, it it's a it's a copy, it's a shadow. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's something made from the pattern.
Other thoughts? I'm a little confused by verse 3 and the offering gifts and sacrifices and how that ties Well, I mean, uh, priest, uh, that's what he does. He offers gifts and sacrifices, but Jesus couldn't be doing that on earth because he's not qualified on earth to be a priest. So his work of offering gifts and sacrifices has to be in the heavenly tabernacle. It can't be in the earthly tabernacle. I mean that, you know, it kind of makes you think about the work of a high priest. You know, they didn't just have the title, they actually offered the gifts and sacrifices, but that's the very thing Jesus could not do on the earth by his being from the tribe of Judah. Is it also because I don't think that's his point here, but that's true. And the difference between the gifts and the sacrifices is like free will gifts and sacrifices required? Maybe so, yeah, probably so. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Anything else do fine. Well, <clears throat> on four, though, again, you're, you would contend that the emphasis is that he wouldn't be a high priest at all because of, of his not being of the lineage of Aaron <laughs> versus the fact that the law didn't change until he had died. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think that's the way I would see it. Okay. He doesn't he doesn't make it very explicit right here. But I still think from what he said in chapter seven that's the most reasonable explanation. It it calls into question certainly the premillennial doctrine of Jesus coming back to the earth to set up his kingdom. Because the prophecies, even Psalm 110 shows Jesus as king-priest. You know, the first part of this king, second part is priest. Well, if he comes back to the earth as king-priest, we got a problem. He can't be a priest. And even in some of the class, some of the older traditional Pentecostal ideas, you know, they were going to go back to the Old Testament priesthood and so forth. So that, it's like, well, so is Jesus not a king priest on the earth? Or what happens? I think that's kind of a problem for them, you know, in that. Because they just you know, make such a confusion of all that. But, but I think that, that would be a reasonable objection to the idea of Jesus coming back to become king. Because even if the, like the, the temple in, at the end of Ezekiel, if that were seen as a literal place, <coughs> there were priests serving there, and it doesn't say Zadok. Jesus Zadok. was serving as the high priest there. That's exactly right. So he would have to be depriested, defrocted. Yeah, I'm not sure what you do with that, or what you do with all of Hebrews that would surely suggest we don't revert back to physical temple, animal sacrifices, Levitical priesthood, and all that. I mean, that's one of the strongest objections to that more, that older form of dispensational premillennialism. Uh, and a lot of the newer dispensationalists have, have trended away from some of those things. I think trying to, you know, mutate a little bit the doctrine to avoid some of those obvious problems. Uh, but... You know, I mean, if you go with that line, I mean, you have really problems. But the problem they have on the other side is, if you take the prophecies literally in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so forth, then you do have David and you have the Levitical priests and you have the animal sacrifice and you have the physical temple. I mean, so they kind of are forced to now, a lot of them are even allowing more figurative nature of some of these prophecies. But of course, once they do that, then they kind of sacrifice the whole principle that, that they built their doctrine on. And they're better with that. I mean, I think certainly we're not supposed to see those as being literally fulfilled, 
but if they're not, then kind of defeats the reason why they had that doctor in the first place. Look at six. This is our transition verse. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. I mean, you certainly have figured out by now what the key word in Hebrews is, haven't you? You know, however you want to say it. I mean, you might be able to say it in different ways, but essentially it's the idea better. You know, I mean, well, (laughs) that's the point. And we're transitioning from priesthood to covenant here. So from here, he's going to kind of talk about the covenant. All right, anything to 8.6? Well, in the next section, we will have the longest Old Testament citation in the New Testament. So, 7 to 13. covenant has been has been faultless had been faultless there would be would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with him he says behold days are coming says the lord when i will effect a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant which made which i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and i did not care for them says the lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. Now I will write them on their, on their hearts, and I will be the, their God, and they shall be my people. They shall, not teach everyone his, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is, and growing old is ready to disappear. So, we are dealing with this change of covenant and pointing out that this change is an indication that the second one is superior. We wouldn't need a second one if the first one did the trick. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31, which says that God is going to make a new covenant and it's not going to be a warmed over old covenant either. It's going to be a new covenant not like the other one. And he points out some of the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant that Jeremiah says was God was going to make with them. What are some of those differences? the laws will be in their minds and it will be written on their hearts? Yes. And, you know, many of these things, I think, are differences, perhaps, of actual accomplishment. God intended for the laws to be on the hearts of the people in the Old Covenant, but they didn't get there for the most part. Uh, They more or less stayed on the stones. So this covenant really will have God's laws in their hearts and minds. And he really will be their God and they'll be his people. That was always the goal of the covenant. But I think the idea is this will be realized more fully in the new covenant. What other differences are there? They will know the Lord. Now, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I think I understand why he says this. What was it about the Old Covenant that made it necessary to teach the Covenant people to know the Lord? They were born. That's what I think. Yes. When did you come into the Covenant in the Old Testament? Yeah, eight days if you're a boy, I guess. Circumcised. I guess the girls just are born into it. You know. But yeah, you're, you're a covenant person as a, as a baby. And then in that covenant, you then have to be taught to know the Lord. But in the new covenant, you can't get into the covenant unless you already know the Lord. That's so different. I think that's a real key to a lot of things 
in the difference between the Old and New Covenant is that only people who really are people of faith are in the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was more of a national covenant. You could get in there without ever knowing the Lord. You may never know the Lord. So this is a superior thing. This is actually with the people who've chosen to know God and they want to know God and they do know God. And he also makes the point that there's ultimate forgiveness in this new covenant. Obviously, that's another thing that is a matter of emphasis. There was forgiveness in the old covenant, but there is forgiveness on a sounder basis in the new covenant. So I think you see the new covenant bringing in a fuller measure of the relationship that God wanted to have with his people. But then he makes the point, and this is often misunderstood, but I think I'm right about this. In verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, now who was it who said a new covenant? Says the Lord. Okay, through whom did the Lord say a new covenant? Jeremiah. Yes. So I want you to think about Jeremiah. When, when, when God through Jeremiah said a new covenant, what did that automatically do with the other one? Began to displace it. Yes, and it makes it old. When you start looking for a new car, what do you immediately start thinking about the car that you have been having? It suddenly in your mind becomes the old car because you're looking for a new car. And when he spoke of a new covenant, then that automatically made us think of the other one as the old covenant. And if it's old, it's going to be replaced. From the perspective of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah said new, that meant the first one was old and it was going to... Be, be replaced. When you say, I'm going to look for a new car, that immediately means your other car is old, and it will soon be you know, sold or traded in or whatever. So I think that's the idea. From Jeremiah's perspective, when he said new, it made the other one old, and it was going to disappear when the new one actually came into effect. I don't think this is a transition phase between the new and old covenants, you know, between A.D. 30 and 70 or something like that. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's putting himself back in Jeremiah's day and saying when Jeremiah said new, that made the other one old and meant that it was going to disappear, which he, it did when Jesus came and bought the new one. <clears throat> There's a lot in all that, I'm sure. <laughs> so I'll stop talking and let you guys talk. So that suggests that the old covenant was starting to disappear 586? Yes. I mean, you, you know it was going to. You see, it, it's already, you know, it's kind of, uh, it kind of, it's a lame duck. You know, it, it, it's because, because now we got a new one on the horizon. So now this one's old, and it's, you know, it's in its last stages. But they didn't give up on it. I mean, it didn't give them the freedom to say, well, it's old, so forget about it. It was still in effect until the new one really came. Like your car. Yeah, yeah, you don't want you to start looking for a new car, just uh, junk your old car, because what are you going to do until you actually buy the new one? I like the lame duck presidency analogy. I think that's the... Yeah, he's still the president. That, to me, is a stronger position than some of the others that are taken in verse 13. It just requires us to go back to Jeremiah's day and look at it from his perspective, which is, I think, what he's doing. So Jeremiah prophesied about the end of the Old Covenant. When he said new, yes. His saying new means other is old and means the old's going to be replaced. 
Wasn't yet, but will be. So he's saying from Jeremiah, you should know that the old one is going to continue forever and that the new is going to be better. Why go back to the old one? You get this new, nice new car, what in the world are you doing, you know, discarding it and going back to the old car? Any reason why it would be Jeremiah as opposed to one of, to opposed to like Malachi? Who prophesied it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess Jeremiah is a pretty good one to do that because he prophesies at the end of Judah and is really trying to, in that section, give hope for the future to the people who were going into exile. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both have some really powerful sections about the new covenant idea and about the new spirit that God would pour out and the new life he'd give his people and all that, because I think the people needed it right then. And then, they were, then by the time they came back from captivity under Zerubbabel et al. Then they, that spiritual restoration idea was already being spoken of by the prophets. You're saying by Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all three of those certainly have something to say about the coming of Christ and what he'll do. Zechariah especially, mm-hmm. and really Malachi too, maybe Haggai a little bit less. Zechariah has lots to say <laughs> about the coming of Christ. Back in verse 8, when he says, for <clears throat> finding fault with them, he says, finding fault with Maybe, maybe the people. Okay. I mean, that was the problem. If it ha- if the people hadn't sinned, the old covenant would have been adequate. Yeah. Other comments and questions? You know what I mean? wasn't just the people of that time, of Jeremiah's time. It was like cumulatively the nation. Yes. Specifically yes. them yes. in a sense that yes. continue in my covenant and I did not care for them. Does that mean he didn't like them? Or no. that he sent droughts <laughs> and plagues? What does it say in Jeremiah? I don't know, but I look back at that. Yeah, I think it's the idea that he, uh, you know, he ended up punishing them. Okay. But he didn't provide them. <coughs> I don't remember exactly how it said it in Jeremiah. Um, but yeah, we've got that colloquial use of I didn't care for you. <laughs> it means I didn't like you, but that's kind of an Americanism, I think. Oh, wait, what is it? It says they did not continue to wait. Yeah, that's what verse you That you were in the right place. 31. 32. Although I was a husband at that. I think, yeah, I mean, he didn't, you know, they didn't continue his covenant and he punished them. By not taking care of them? By not husbanding yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> Provide, <laughs> by not providing for them. Okay. Other comments, questions? All right, well, this is probably a good place to uh, stop for tonight. Really good discussion. I really appreciate it.
been able to talk through these things. It, it is a blessing to be able to, you know, just think through these passages and other questions that arise. We, we have a great blessing in doing that, and just really need to uh, try to do all we can with the blessing that we've been given to reach out to others, both lost ones and people in difficult situations. I thought a little bit, I'm going to push this this weekend, but, you know, you guys, many of you will be there, so I'll push it with you, and you can be thinking about this and praying about this. But, you know, I've thought a little bit.